Right then, you may have found this on your tables. Uh, accountability questions. Yes, that's right. We're going to talk about accountability this morning, but I'm going to come on to that in a second. Um, I just want to say, now the kids aren't here, uh, or the England, not every single one of these is about sex. Um, as somebody said to me this morning, um, there, are, there are differences in there, so look for them. Um, but they were taken from a man's kind of accountability website, so that's probably why there's a bit of a, a certain bent towards a certain theme on there. But um, I don't expect you to discuss those this morning at, at any point. Um, they'll come clearer when I get onto my section about accountability partners. But I just want to remind ourselves of kind of the journey that we're on. Now, the journey that we're on is about building kingdom and not empire. So we are to build kingdom and not empire. Uh, and some of the kind of principles that we've, we've discovered or rediscovered um, to help us on that journey uh, we've gone through over the last number of weeks. We've had a bit of a break for Easter uh, and for our, for our finance, Kingdom Finance series that we did. Um, but I just want to point you back now to the seven principles that we've got. Uh, I'm not going to go through each one of these because um, we're taking them one week at a time when we can. But the first is relationship. The second is prayer, and that's foundational in all that we do. Then we've got communion, taking the bread and the wine regularly. Teaching one another, preaching and teaching. Community, living in true community. Accountability, and I'm going to speak on that this morning. Uh, and finally, honoring. And we came up with these seven principles as principles to which we could apply to our life groups. Because we believe that the way we're going to reach this city is not by having uh, an event every Sunday morning. But it's about people living life in their streets, geographically where they're at, and meeting as a group of people in those, in those places and, and doing all those things. And particularly the, the prayer bit, that we go out and we walk around our streets that, in which we live and we pray for the houses, for our neighbors, for our next-door neighbors, for the businesses that might be close by. And we pray simply blessing on these houses and these businesses. It's all very simple. Prayer is really simple. You just pray blessing and God will bless it. Um, so even though they are specifically kind of targeted for our life groups, um, there are some things to which we can apply to the body as a whole as well. Uh, and so like I said, this morning I'm going to speak on accountability. And accountability, I've put a, a sign, if you can nearly read it, the, the projector's not brilliant, um, responsibility ahead, um, because accountability carries huge responsibility. But I'm going to come into all that in a second. So let me just tell you, uh, remind you of something that's happened in, in history. Way back in uh, 1995, you may remember that a certain bank, in fact the oldest merchant bank in London, filed for bankruptcy. Can anybody remember what that bank was called in 1995? Filed for bankruptcy. Okay. The Bearings Bank. Well done, Paul. Two points for you. <laughs> it's worth an applause as well. Well done. Um, it was the Bearings Bank, and it had lost £827 million in various stock gambles. And it started when a man that uh, went by the name of Nick Leeson was able to trade in a number of stock markets without proper accountability. Let me read you what Wikipedia 
has to say about um, what happened uh, with Nick Leeson and Bering's Bank. Bear with me, it's a bit of a mouthful. Under Bering's Futures Singapore's management structure, through 1995, Leeson doubled as both the floor manager for Bering's trading on the Singapore International Monetary Exchange and head of settlement operations. In the latter role, he was charged with ensuring accurate accounting for the unit. The positions would normally have been held by two different employees. By allowing Leeson as trading floor manager to settle his own trades, Bearings short-circuited normal accounting and internal control audit safeguards. Are you still with me? Okay. In effect, Leeson was able to operate with no supervision from London, an arrangement that made it easier for him to hide his losses. After the collapse, several observers, including Leeson himself, placed much of the blame on the bank's own deficient internal auditing and risk management practices. Leeson himself actually said in his book, Rogue Trader, People at the London end of Bearings were all so know-all that nobody dared ask a stupid question in case they all looked silly in front of everyone else. That's from his book, Rogue Trader. Um, The question is, how can one 28-year-old employee lose nearly a billion pounds and ruin the most oldest and influential bank in the UK? And if you are listening to the Wikipedia article, um, it does allude to an answer. And it all boiled down to lack of supervision and lack of accountability. For those who are actively engaged in stock market trading for companies, and I don't know how many of you are in this room right now, probably not that many, um, you're never allowed to keep your own books. Uh, you're never allow, allowed to run freely without some kind of double-check system in place. However, it appears back in '95 uh, that Leeson was the exception. He was allowed to invest and keep his own books without anyone looking over his shoulder. It's kind of like putting a stick of dynamite in the hand of a child and a match in the other. At some point, there's going to be an explosion. It's not the best or most mature thing to do. Now, accountability is nothing new to us. We are accountable when we think of our lives to all kinds of different people. At work, most of us are accountable to our boss or our business partners. At school, kids are accountable to their teachers. Did you hear that, kids? You're accountable to your teachers? What's that? Oh, good. Well, that's good. A little bit of laughing. That's good. At home, we're accountable to our spouses or our partners. And on the road, we're ultimately accountable to the traffic cops that are checking our speed. Uh, in government, one branch of government is generally accountable in some way to another branch of government. And so we all have accountability all around us uh, in our lives. So the one question, another question I have to ask is why do we sometimes seem to have an issue with accountability in church? When we recognize we have accountability all around us, sometimes 
some of us can have an issue with accountability in church. And I say that with a big C. I'm talking about the worldwide church, not just those here. When it comes to our personal relationship with Jesus Christ and our Christian walk, we can forget that we need to be accountable for our actions. A disturbing trend in our post-modern society is that, in which we live is that we think our actions are no one else's businesses but our own. And that's what a post-modern society will bring. Post-modern society means it's a society in which you do what is good for you and I'll do what is good for me and we'll just live happily like that and you won't impose your views on me, you won't impose your views on, uh, I won't impose my, my views on you and you just crack on doing what you do and we're all left to our own devices. That's a very simplistic term of explaining what postmodernism is. I'm sure somebody could think of a more eloquent way of putting that. Um, we get scared when we think that others will judge us and if we think they'll, they'll condemn us um, if we let them know certain things. And when we begin to think that we're accountable only to ourselves, then we start to become a little bit dangerous, I think. When we think of most church scandals, it should come of no surprise that a lot of these began because there was a lack of accountability. And I'm sure we could all think of certain scandals over the years where it began, when you look at it, it's began with a lack of accountability. So let me remind you of something that as Christians you should know already. That someday you will be held to account for your spiritual walk. Let me repeat that in case you don't quite believe it. Someday, every single one of us will be held to account in front of God for our spiritual walk. Are you still feeling comfortable? Okay. Let's look at Matthew chapter 12. So if, you can, if you've got a Bible or a, a Bible app, um, turn to Matthew chapter 12. Verses 33 to 37. I'll give you a few moments to do that while I have a sneaky drink of coffee. So Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 to 37. And I'm speaking from the uh, NIV version, I believe. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. This is Jesus speaking. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment For every empty word that they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. It seems clear that we have to give an account to God. Jesus said it. And we will be held accountable even by the words we say. Therefore, we must make sure that we bear good fruit. So what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to suggest 
three important relationships that will help us stay that course and stand unashamed before God on the day of judgment. And in these three relationships, I'm going to use the word mentor uh, and mentoring. And I just want to remind us uh, this point. I just want to remind us that um, at this point, uh, a few years ago, um, we spent a good majority of the year speaking on discipleship. Does anybody remember? Kind of, we spent at least half a year or more just constantly talking about discipleship and what is discipleship and all those questions around it. So I want you to bear in mind that when I talk about mentoring in these three relationships or being mentored, uh, I'm in essence talking about someone who disciples and someone who is being a disciple. So I hope that this morning will actually more, more, more likely serve as a reminder of some of those things that we spoke about when we spent that majority of time on discipleship. If you want to go look back at that, I'm going to remind you again, it's available on our website, citychurchleads.net, and I think just tag 2010 or 2011. I can't quite remember which year we did it in. So have a look there. Uh, These are very practical relationships. I'm going to speak very practically about what you can do, how you can kind of work these things through in your life. I put all this in context that it's my opinion, um, some of these things, but also some of these things are going to be very scriptural and very biblical, and you're going to find it pretty hard to argue against them. Okay, so bear that in mind as I read these things. So relationship one, if you're taking notes, relationship one, find a mentor. Okay, and I've got to admit, when I hear the word mentor, I don't get an entirely accurate picture in my mind. In fact, I almost always initially think of Yoda from Star Wars. And sometimes I even hear him saying, use the force, you must. Mm." Maybe that's just my geeky side raising its head. But as silly as Yoda seems, he does actually show us some really useful points when talking about mentoring. So your task for today will be to go and watch Star Wars. Uh, Star Wars through uh, four. Thank you. A new hope when you get home. Don't bother with the first three. (laughs) So let's just think about three things that Yoda does. He passes on extreme wisdom to his pupils. He lives in a way that is to be emulated by others. And Yoda looks out for the good in all his students. And so now I want you to consider Yoda for just a little moment longer. A little green man in your head. And now get him out of your head. All right, discard him. Get rid of him now. Back to a bit more serious kind of point. I'd like to give you a snippet of a history lesson about mentors. The first example of the word appears in the Greek mythology. And mentor was the son of Alchemus. And in his old age, he became a friend of Odysseus. And when Odysseus left for the Trojan War, he placed Mentor in charge of the development of his son Telemachus and of his palace and everything he owned. And so to quote Wikipedia again, good old faithful Wikipedia, uh, a mentor is someone who is in a personal developmental relationship and is a more experienced or more knowledgeable person who helps to guide a less experienced or less knowledgeable person. However, and I love this, this is from Wikipedia, true mentoring is more than just answering occasional questions or providing ad hoc help. 
It's about an ongoing relationship of learning, dialogue, and challenge. I'm going to grab another drink of coffee while you absorb that. You've got your out of your head yet? So this is not a new practice. Mentors have been around for a long time. Tradesmen, artists, craftsmen have engaged in mentoring for centuries by passing on their skills to their apprentices. Michelangelo, one of the greatest painters of all time, contributed all of his success to his teacher, Bertoldo, who took the young artist under his wing. Alexander the Great had Aristotle. Gene Roddenberry had Isaac Asimov. Had to get a Trekkie reference in there. John McEnroe had Tony Palafox. And Lance Armstrong, a seven-times Tour de France winner, uh, had Eddie Merckx. And there are more and more and more I could mention. When I was trying to make up the list of kind of famous mentors, I found this website where it was just, it was just long and you could just tack sports and everything. Loads of examples where throughout history there has been a mentor and a mentor e or somebody who is being mentored. So again, I ask another question. If the world so obviously embraces the younger generation through mentoring, then why shouldn't the church? In fact, the Bible is chock full of of examples of great men who had a mentor. So I'm going to remind you, I'm going to tell you a few here, I'm sure you can think of more. Joshua had Moses. The disciples had Jesus. Timothy had Paul. And again, like I said, we could go on and on. But even Jesus sought out mentors as a young man. In Luke chapter 2, we're told of the boy Jesus at the age of 12. His parents were in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And after the festivities, Mary and Joseph started to head back home when they realized that Jesus wasn't with them. Where was he? In verse 46, it tells us, after three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And later in the chapter, we're told that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in favor with God and men. Jesus knew some things at the age of 12 that some of us have not even learned yet. And maybe one of those things is that everyone needs to continue to seek greater knowledge and wisdom. None of us have made it. None of us have got every uh, I dotted and T crossed. We should all be continually learning and seeking greater knowledge and wisdom. Jesus knew that all people, even the Son of God, need to be around people who can give them godly counsel and godly wisdom. He was clearly remembering the words of Solomon in Proverbs 13, verse 20, which says, He who walks with the wise grows wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. After we recognize the need to get a mentor, we need to know what to look for. And as I said earlier, a mentor could be described as a kind of teacher, Uh, And a chap called William A. Ward once said this, The mediocre teacher tells, the good teacher explains, the great teacher demonstrates and inspires. 
We need to find someone who will explain and demonstrate the way for us to go and then inspire us to get to the next step in our spiritual journey. Secondly, as Christians, we must ensure that our mentors have spiritual commitment. They're not playing games, that they're not just Sunday Christians. They are people who model the lifestyle of Jesus Christ on an everyday basis. They're not perfect, but they strive to give their best to God. And finally, you need a mentor who is open and honest. They're willing to spend some time with you to share their weaknesses and their strengths. They share their triumphs and their mistakes. They want to share their joy and their pain. And they do all this out of a love for you. To help keep you on the straight and narrow. Paul in scripture has to be a very good example of this. All we have to do uh, to see this is read his epistles to Timothy. I love the two books of Timothy. I get so much from those two books. They're probably, I know everybody says they have their favorite books in the Bible, but they're probably mine, closely followed by Acts. Um, it seems to say throughout these kind of two books, particularly to Timothy and uh, in some of his other letters, do as I have told you, do as I have shown you, hear is what I have gone through. Even though times have been tough, I've stayed the course. And that is the type of mentor that we need, no matter how old we are. That's the kind of mentor we need. But obviously, I'm kind of focusing a little bit on the younger generation to the older generation. Relationship number two. Find an accountability partner. And it kind of explains that sheet on your, your desk there. But let me tell you a story before I go into that. There was once a person who he didn't want to go to a Sunday church meeting. He told his mother this, and she told him he had to go. But mom, they don't like me there. His mother replied, there are a lot of people who like you. Now you have to go. But mom, it's too hot in there. His mother replied, well, we'll sit near the back, near the door, where it's a little bit cooler. But mom, I'm tired. I stayed up late last night. His mother replied, it's only for an hour and a half, and then you can sleep all afternoon. But mom, and his mother didn't let him finish. And she said, son, you have to go. You're the minister. (laughs) Now, in this jokey story... The minister of the church knew what he was supposed to do, but he needed a a bit of a nudge to help him do the right thing. And the nudge came from his mother, who was holding him accountable. Everyone needs this kind of relationship with at least one other person. And this is what some call an accountability partner. And I've never called, called it, or anybody, refer to anybody as an accountability partner, but when I I read it, I decided I like the sound of it, and it gives it kind of a a special kind of title, doesn't it? So you're my accountability partner. It helps us ground it in something rather than it being kind of a bit wavy up here. 
So we'll, we'll use that. I'm going to use that, that terminology from now on. And just like mentoring, this is nothing new. And uh, again, Paul, we see, had an accountability partner whom we all know of, uh, and it was Peter. In Galatians 2, Paul tells us of a time when Peter was ignoring the Gentiles he used to eat with. This action caused some of the other Jews to do the same. And now when Paul hears about this, he does the right thing, even though it's not easy. And verse 11 says this, But when Peter came to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face, for what he did was very wrong. Another example of this occurs in the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, We all know the wrong that David did with Bathsheba, but there was only one person who confronted David on it, Nathan. He went straight to David to call him on his sin. Now, why did these two people confront others on these issues? It was because they sought to hold these brothers accountable for their actions. They were serving as their accountability partners. And they did this, this is important, not to embarrass their brothers. They did it out of love. And sometimes speaking the truth in love hurts. Sometimes speaking the truth but in love still hurts. I'm not suggesting now that you all go out and point out all the faults that you see in everybody and and you tell them about them. I'm not suggesting you do that. That's not what I'm getting at. The point is that both of these examples had people, there were people who had close ties. They respected one another. They had bonded together enough to know that they could trust each other. And this bit I've put in italics, so it's really important. They had moved beyond their own pride and fear in their relationships to know that the other was only looking out for their best interests. I'm going to read that again. They had moved beyond their own pride and fear in their relationships to know that the other was only looking after their best interests. So as you search for an accountability partner... You need to search for someone out with maybe the same interests, not necessarily, but maybe helps. But I would say certainly somebody who is at a similar age in their Christian walk. So it could be natural age, could be different, but a similar age in their Christian walk. You need to spend time, and by this I mean make time with this person, building up trust, honesty, and openness. This should be someone who loves you, but is not in awe of you. Someone who will ask you the hard questions and make sure you are doing the things you should. And you, in turn, should do the same for them. Through this relationship, you'll be able to sharpen one another. And uh, if we read Proverbs 27, 12, it says this, As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens iron another. This person is one who challenges you to live a holy life and someone you should give your, want to give your life for. It's one of those friends that are closer than a brother or a sister. 
It is a person who you are comfortable with sharing your sins, weaknesses, and shortcomings because you know they will speak to you out of love and truth concerning them. Like I said earlier, this scares most people to death. But we've got to move on to this next level if we're going to have true accountability partners. Relationship number three. Be a mentor. Be that person. In relationship, when we talked about looking for a mentor, um, being prepared to be mentored or discipled, but let's look at it now from this other angle. In today's schools, there seems to be more and more students who are difficult to deal with. And one of the ways that some schools are trying to approach the problem is with mentors, assigning, where possible, a mentor to work one-on-one with a student. And I read some stats from a school in in the States uh, where one school is using retired individuals uh, to help mentor middle school students. Uh, And I'm going to read you some some of the results from them trying to do this. 88% of these problem students have increased self-confidence. 78% have become more responsible. 75% have dramatically improved their self-control. 73% of these problem students worked better with others. And 68% improved their grades by one whole letter grade simply by investing in these students one-on-one. They've seen a dramatic increase across the board in all stats to which they measure uh, these things. I'm not entirely sure how they work out the stats, but the general idea is it was a positive increase. It was also um, found that a lot of kids who have these issues are ones that don't have any kind of relationship like that at home. They don't have a mentor of any real description at home. Again, just pop that in your head. Uh, Another quote from a chap named D.L. Moody. It is better to train 10 people than to do the work of 10 people. But it is harder. It's better to train 10 people than to do the work of 10 people. But it is harder. And I think that I pretty much agree with with that quote. We must make an effort. We must make an effort. An effort. We have to do something. We have to get up and go. We have to make an effort to train others around us. And it's hard work. And that's probably why it's not so popular. But it must be done for the future of the church which affects and should affect the future of our society. It must be done. I'm sure that many of us have heard stories in many varied situations where folk have talked about the good old days and where you hear the the same names spoken of again and again in a very positive way. And I think for us here, uh, a lot of us would, um, well, I mean, I didn't personally know him, but some of the old generation would refer to Bryn Jones or indeed Kerry Jones. And you see their names mentioned over and over again. 
about people that there were people who really impacted other lives. Why do people do this? Why, why do people talk about people like that? And I can say I think it's because a large proportion, they, these like for example, Bryn and Kerry gave over a large proportion of their lives into the next generation. Let's think of teachers. Let's think of when we're at school. And for some of us, that's a bit harder than others. But let's think about when we're at school. And I'm sure pretty much every one of us has got one teacher or maybe a couple of teachers where you think, I still remember them for the impact they had in my life or are having in my life. And these guys would have probably spent time with you, probably giving much more than they needed to just to make sure that you succeeded, or at the very least, you were able to give whatever it was your very best shot. And beyond school and, and back into church, um, again, I think I mentioned, you know, we mentioned Bryn and Kerry, we could think of maybe more people that have left a legacy because of the hard work of training and time they took into investing into others and investing into the future. So another question I have to ask is, do we still do this? Do we still do this? Let's ask some more questions. Do enough people in church in particular task themselves with raising the next generation? Do we find so many squabbles occurring in church because of a lack of mentoring? Do we have a lack of young folk in church because of a lack of mentoring. I'm going to stop and just pause because God just, just keeps pointing out these guys. These guys that are on these tables with the bends and the bends themselves. There's an increase of young people coming here because of the time that these guys invest in a mentoring capacity into the younger generation. Outside of this environment, there are tens of kids who they're affecting and who are growing in Christ and growing spiritually and walking a a life with God that they wouldn't have done because of what these guys have invested into them, mentoring them through uh, their job, but ultimately it's their calling. And so just, I just want to honor you guys, Ben and Co and Hannah and, and Ben and Jess, because Jess involves herself a lot. I just want to honor you guys for what you are doing with our children. And there are more folks that work with them, and I honor you as well. There'd be too many to kind of go through the list, but I just want to say I honor you as well, and I thank you for working into our kids. And uh, obviously we've heard about Pat and Pete and kind of being involved in the kids club thing as well. I honor all of you. Keep going. But my question was, we still, there is still, on the whole, a lack of young people either staying in church or even being attracted to church, to his body. And is this because of a lack of mentoring or a lack of a, you know, once they're there, who is there to help them, to guide them, to move them? It shouldn't just be the guy at the front or the girl at the front. We all have responsibility. All of us, every single one of us have Responsibility. I'm jumping ahead of myself. I think to an extent, maybe this is a possibility as to why um, there's less young folk 
in church. The older and younger generation don't normally hang around each other. And I accept that there is a huge difference between a 50-year-old and a teenager. It is an absolutely different world. Completely different world, a different planet. Uh, and we probably then, because of this, naturally lose, naturally, sorry, naturally focus in on those differences. So, for example, I can talk to, and forgive me, I can, not every older person than me, but I can talk to those that are in their 60s, 70s, 80s about technology, and they go, oh, I don't need to deal with that. That's, you know, or, or you know, you like that, I don't. And then we're focusing in on, on this difference that, uh, love of technology and love of kind of where things are going is our difference rather than focusing on first and primarily what do we have in common. Um, because of uh, focusing on this, these differences, there can be a relationship gap between the young and the old. And where there's no relationship, there can be a lack of respect, a lack of love, and importantly, a lack of honor. I hope you're listening to this, kids. Yeah, looking at you, looking at you guys. If you don't have a relationship with someone, you are less likely to think about their feelings, their wants, and their desires. That could be across the board in any kind of relationships, not just a mentoring relationship. I would say that if you're in a church with a strong emphasis on mentoring, it's, it's bound to be quite different. The old and young make an effort to come together Again, make an effort to come together, to, be, to teach and to, to, to be taught. And they start to develop a bond. And as this bond becomes stronger, you're more likely to be able to see through each other's eyes. And again, I think that's across the, the board on all relationships. This forming relationships helps you see things through each other's eyes. If we don't have this type of relationship, then we can quickly misunderstand one another. Martin Luther once said that a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. Again, in Scripture, Paul took this to heart. He had a lot of things going on. He had church congregations springing up all over the place. And he'd not even been a follower of Christ for long. Even though it would have been easy for Paul to focus on himself and his work, he poured his life into a protege. And we know, and I'm going to come back to him, we know that Paul wrote to Timothy at least two letters to encourage and instruct this young man, but he did more than this. In Philippians 2.22, Paul tells us the following, But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of of the gospel. Paul describes this young man as a son, the closest bond they could be. They'd grown so close that they'd developed a familial connection. And take it from me as a father, you want to look out for the best for your son. And a son, in turn, should look out for the best and want to please their father. Son, daughter, using just using son just for this example. We need more of these kind of relationships in church. We need more of them. And again, just to go off my notes a little bit, part of this comes from learning what commitment is and then understanding what covenant really means. And I would suggest that we have lost 
some of that meaning of what covenant really is and what it really means. We need to rediscover that and plant it out into a new generation of people. Because I guarantee, younger guys, when you talk to some of the older guys that have been around um, together or Covenant Ministries International and whatever it was before that, there was a strong emphasis and teaching on covenant relationship. Strong emphasis. And maybe we need to, we need to be looking at that again in, in much closer detail in future. Where am I? Okay, these relationships are so, so important to every believer. And we should not belittle in any way the value of these relationships in our lives. Think about today. Think about right now and for the rest of the day. Think about whether you are holding yourself accountable to anyone. And I don't just mean your husband or your wife. I'm thinking of somebody outside of that relationship, which is a special and unique relationship. Is there anybody outside of that relationship that you can regard as an accountability partner? And I would suggest that if we don't have this relationship, um, you, need to, you need to find it. And generally, try and find it with somebody of the same sex. That'll make things a whole lot easier and a whole less potentially destructive. So find an accountability of the same sex. Who are your mentors? We can have several mentors, I think. And some of these can be at a distance. But I would suggest that we really need to form these mentoring relationships with someone that can be close at hand. Or someone who can, have, can make time to be with you at the drop of a hat, potentially. And remember that a mentor is not someone who is necessarily accountable to you. So a mentoring relationship is not the same as an accountability relationship. We shouldn't regard it as that because that mentor will have people that he is or she is accountable to. It's not always the same. And finally, who are you? In fact, no, actually, before I go on to that one, um, I downloaded this, this uh, copied these kind of five points that this, this guy on a website um, talked about when he... Uh, how he kind of works with those that mentor him. And I'm, I'm going to read these out. And these are his opinion. And you can feel free to disagree with any. But I think, I think the first two, and they're very practical, the first two are very good. Number one, I always adjust to their schedule. Always. When, I attempt, when I'm attempting to set up an appointment with someone I want to meet with, I always ask them to throw two or three dates at me that is most convenient for them. And then I adjust my schedule to make the meeting happen. I never send them the times I want and ask them to adjust their schedules. Number two, I'm always early for an appointment. I'm going to repeat that one. I'm always early for an appointment. There's an honoring aspect there. We start at half ten. I'll leave it there. But he says, if I'm driving out of town, I always make sure I arrive around 30 minutes early. If I get there too early, then I find a coffee shop and I take a book. Always have a book with you. Number three, I have a list of at least five questions that I want to ask. Uh, And his mentor is John Maxwell. Uh, So if anybody knows John Maxwell, he's a very successful kind of 
leadership guru. Uh, he's amazing. He produced lots of books and it's very good. Anyway, I remember John Maxwell saying, saying to me once, I will mentor you, but you have to ask the questions. I'm not preparing a lesson for you. You guide this meeting. So if they're meeting together for coffee or whatever. If you want to know something, ask. If you don't ask anything, then we don't really have anything to talk about. Four, I don't talk about myself unless they ask. When I meet up with a mentor, I don't spend 30 minutes telling them about myself, my daily routine, my philosophy of ministry, how good I think I am. I ask questions and then I shut up. If I disagree, I don't argue. In fact, if I disagree with something, I will usually ask them to explain their point of view a little more, which oftentimes has helped me in so many ways as I've learned that I really can love people even if we disagree. (laughs) And number five, I always send a note, a gift, something just to say thank you. I appreciate you. So guys, kind of five points of how he regards his mentoring relationship. So finally, who are you mentoring? Whose life are you impacting in such a deep way that you are affecting their spiritual walk as well as how they present themselves to others? If you are someone of, an, of experience, then you have a responsibility to mentor others. And as all of us are people of experience, therefore all of us have a responsibility to mentor others. So don't shirk that responsibility. And this doesn't mean that you force yourselves on anyone, but you simply make yourself available as you walk this life as an example of Christ. God bless.